Defence Dialogue, a podcast discussing contemporary challenges in the area of European security and defence. Brought to you by the Martin Centre with Nicholas Novaki. Welcome to Defence Dialogue. It's a podcast series by the Wilfried Martin Centre for European Studies that focuses on contemporary issues and developments in the area of European defence. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Novaki, and today we're talking to Mr. Karl Bildt, who was uh, Sweden's former foreign minister from 2006 to 2004, 2014, and prime minister from 1991 to 1994, a period during which Sweden negotiated its uh, accession into the European Union. He's also an internationally renowned diplomat who has served as the EU Special Envoy to the former Yugoslavia, co-chairman of the 1995 Dayton Peace Conference, High Representative for Bosnia-Herzegovina, and UN Secretary General's Special Envoy for the Balkans. Mr. Bild currently holds advisory positions in numerous international organizations and is also a member of the Martin Center's Honorary Board. So without further, further ado, Mr. Bild, welcome to Defence Dialogue. Thanks very much. You maintain a, a very active profile in social media, and those listeners who follow you on Twitter know that you shuttle almost constantly from airport to airport. So my first question is, how do you manage to be so active at all times? Well, I've always been fairly active on uh, sort of modern, uh, modern technologies and modern media. We started with the internet sort of in the mid-90s, de facto. It was email in those days, and then it was web, and then it was blog, and then um, I was not among the first on Twitter, but then I become uh, fairly prolific on it. I find it's extremely useful, both in terms of... Uh, finding out things. I follow quite a lot. I can give numerous examples where I can follow developments in different parts of the world through social media and Twitter better than I can do in any other way, really. And then it's a good way of getting the uh, the message out. And then it became sort of a funny thing with aircrafts. So it's been sort of some signature that I... I have a tweet whenever I board an aircraft, and it happens to be quite a number of times. I took a train today from London, has to be said. Did you tweet about that as well? I did tweet about the train, because um, I wanted to make clear that it sometimes happened that I don't fly, because others uh, think I'm flying every single day. But I fly back to Stockholm tomorrow. Moving on, in late April, uh, North and South Korea, they held a historic summit by the uh, demilitarized zone that divides the two countries. And... uh, they also, importantly, uh, the two countries confirmed that uh, denuclearization in the Korean Peninsula is a shared goal for them. Is this momentum towards denuclearization uh, in the Korean Peninsula that we now seem to be witnessing genuine, in your, your opinion? That certainly remains to be seen. It was an important meeting, no question about that, but it was not the first one. Uh, there were similar meetings, first one in 2000 and then one in 2007. And the language that was used in the final statement on denuclearization was really the language language that has been standard on X numbers of occasions, also from the North Korean side. So the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And it will be, of course, more important when uh, Kim Jong-un meets uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump expects more or less Kim Jong-un to bring the nukes with him and hand them over. I think that is exceedingly unlikely that it will happen. More likely is that we will see the beginning of a process where they discuss modalities for this, where sort of the denuclearization, which can be defined in different ways, is one of the demands from sort of our side. And of course, from their side is the lifting of sanctions. And you need to calibrate this fairly carefully. But a process, however difficult it's going to be, is of course more to be preferred if you look at the alternative being an open military conflict. Do you see that there might be a role for Europe in this uh, uh, process? Because the Panyamunya 
Ban Moon-yom declaration also mentioned the, the possibility of the international community being uh, involved in the talks. I fail to see that it's essentially going to be a dialogue between Pyongyang and Washington. That's that's the basis of it. Then we have Seoul, needless to say. We have Tokyo. We have the uh, Chinese. We've got the Russians. We've got the six powers. Uh, Europeans are on the Security Council. Some Europeans are in Pamunyong, Sweden among them, because we are part of what's called the Neutral Nation Supervisory Commission, left over from the 1953. So we have a military mission in Pamunyong, along with the uh, Poles and the Swiss. But I don't expect that we will be part of the talks, no. From North Korea, uh, let's move on to the broader kind of the threats that uh, and challenges that Europe is currently mm-hmm. facing. And um, I wanted to ask you, what, in your opinion, are currently the biggest threats specifically that Europe is facing? Well, we have major threats, uh, major challenges in our sort of immediate neighborhood. We have a revisionist Russia. Uh, We see that in Ukraine primarily, but not only. We have a meltdown in substantial parts of the Middle East with ongoing conflicts in Libya, in Syria, in parts of Iraq, in Yemen, and uh, might have forgotten something, and it might be something by tomorrow. And that, of course, uh, puts pressure on Europe. We are sort of... uh, neighbors of the Middle East and highly integrated with the Middle East in different respects. And then we face, um, I would say, substantial competitiveness challenges. Uh, we, are in the, we are in the end phase of the Industrial Revolution and the beginning of the Digital Revolution. At the moment, frankly speaking, it's the Americans and the Chinese that are making the running. And Europe has not been uh, particularly successful, not too bad, but not particularly successful in uh, getting on the digital train and transforming our economies and our societies. Some do. I mean, we're better than Nordic states and Estonia and whatever, but um, Europe as a whole is uh, lagging significantly behind. It's interesting that you bring up this issue of uh, the, dig- the digitalization and, uh, mm-hmm. and the, the digital developments in, 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 uh, in the market in the context of uh, threats and challenges. And do you think that there could perhaps uh, be some sort of security implications as well if Europe doesn't get properly on the, on the, on the so-called uh, digital train, as you mentioned? Oh, there will be. No question about that. I mean, go back to the, in history, to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the, the, the raw materials of the Industrial Revolution was coal and steel. The nations that were sitting on that, that was England, that was Germany, and the politics in those days was about coal and steel, France, and uh, there was wars over it, and the coal and steel community and whatever, that was the uh, that was the thing. And Stalin built Magnitogorsk and the Americans built Pittsburgh and whatever. And now it's the digital issues. And who's going to be um, controlling the digital technologies, be that artificial intelligence to take something that is very much debated today, uh, will be decisive for um, a lot of things in the years ahead. And here it is at the moment, sorry to say, it's a race between the Americans and the Chinese. One thing that uh, you hear more and more these days in Brussels, if you go to conferences and uh, if, if you lead, uh, read the statements of uh, uh, politicians and officials in, in the institutions, is that uh, European defence and EU defence specifically has taken bigger steps in the last couple of years than it uh, did in the last uh, 60 years before that. And uh, there have been some of the re- most recent initiatives are uh, uh, the, the establishment of this thing called Permanent Structured Cooperation, uh, the European Defence Fund, and uh, the Coordinated Annual Review on, on, on Defence. So my question is, do you think that any of these uh, recent initiatives have kind of will help us tackle and address some of the 
threats and uh, challenges that you just outlined. I, I hear the same as you do in, in Brussels, that it's been the biggest debt for 60 years and something like that. I, 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 I don't buy it. Uh, I've been around. Um, I remember when we had something in the EU called the EU headline goals. No, the Helsinki headline goes to be quite precise. uh, 1990. I think it was. And if you read them, they were more ambitious than what we're discussing today. Now, nothing came from it uh, at the end of the day. And what will come out of the different PESCO projects remains to be seen. And they're good. Absolutely. I'm all in favor. It's a good step, but I I don't think we should sort of paint it uh, too rosy. I'm concerned with the fact there's been a reluctance to go for more operational uh, things. We are not ready to um, organize and deploy military forces. Um, and what we see now is, of course, which worries me, is that this has led to the French organizing something on their own, what they call the European Intervention Initiative, which is more more operational. And we have then a divergence between sort of Brussels doing organizational stuff and Paris doing operational stuff and the Americans doing their own things and the Brits somewhere else. The Brits have very significant military capabilities as well. And this has to be brought together uh, the one way or the other. Exactly how that will be done remains to be seen. If it's done, then I think the rhetoric of Brussels will be slightly more relevant than it is today. And do you think that PESCO, the capability development projects, then will also kind of facilitate this sort of more operational uh, side of European defence? It could, could, uh, but not necessarily. I mean, for for, uh, operational capabilities are dependent upon the political will being there, the political willingness, the political ability, the political sort of strategic culture. I've been part of X numbers of military interventions, some of them good and some of them bad. But you learn from them and you learn how complex it is. But there has been a great reluctance by the EU to do anything. Um, I was said foreign ministers for eight years and I remember we had a couple of occasions where we had one occasion where I think we should have deployed one of the EU battle groups, but at the end of the day, there wasn't the courage to do it. In Chad, I remember, was one example. Chad was one example, but Chad, I was not in favour of it. We we did deploy an EU force there, but it wasn't the battle group, because the battle group was too heavy, but we did deploy an EU force, and it was an operation that was complicated, uh, but at the end of the day, successful for two years. We achieved what we should achieve, and we handed over to the UN. Where I think we should have deployed uh, the battle group was in the Central African Republic a couple of years later. Um, that ended up with a sort of a mishmash uh, that didn't achieve that much. Also, also a U4. Also a U4, but uh, since it was decided not to take the EU battle group, which we had and could have deployed, then it was decided to try to do an ad hoc force, and the ad hoc force didn't really materialize. Um, so that was a, that was a failure. And the, I would like to see more readiness in Brussels among the governments, because this is council issues, to, to, to do operations. Absolutely. These recent initiatives, they've gotten over, an overwhelming amount of, kind of support and, and, and uh, um, uh, the reception uh, from EU capitals has, has been overwhelmingly positive. Mm-hmm. But um, there have been like, some critical voices recently coming uh, from, from Washington. And um, one specific thing that uh, Washington has expressed concerns about is this EU goal of uh, achieving strategic autonomy. And uh, my question is, is to you is, is, that, is that if not strategic autonomy, what 
in your opinion, should the appropriate level of ambition for uh, EU defence be? Well, it depends on uh, what we should defend ourselves against. To be quite honest, are we going to defend ourselves against the Russians? Then strategic autonomy is impossible and even dangerous because Russia happens to be a heavily armed nuclear power. And we do respect to the French and the Brits for their nuclear weapons. Um, we can't do that without the Americans. We can't do the heavy operations without the Americans. I mean, even an operation like Libya in 2011 was, was not possible uh, to do without the Americans. Even if, say, that in theory we would have done, tried to do what the three countries, the, the, the Americans and the Brits and the French did in Syria a couple of weeks ago, that we could not have done that on our own. Uh, so the strategic autonomy, yes, for limited operations, uh, we should be able to do them on our own or with more limited backing from the Americans. But for the time being, it's a pipe dream that we can do major operations without the Americans. We are simply not there. If I remember correctly, you, me- you mentioned uh, Libya, and, and if, if I remember uh, correctly, some some of the countries that participated in, in the NATO operation even ran out of ammunition, that is the European uh, allies, and they had to borrow stockpile ammunition from the United States to make up for that shortfall. So there's clearly a way to go. There's a way to go. From that question, let's move on to the um, Eastern Partnership. And I want Mm -hmm. to ask you about the Eastern Partnership because this year um, will be the 10th anniversary of the Eastern Partnership Mm -hmm. being established. And back in 2008, you were one of the Mm -hmm. figures who played Mm -hmm. an active role in uh, in launching this project. So when you look look back at the 10 years of... um, the, the Eastern Partnership being there. How would you assess the, its uh, current state? I think it was one of the um, successful things that we have launched uh, during the last uh, 10 years, as it is now. I mean, it was launched, the idea, it was a Polish-Swedish initiative. We launched it in the autumn, uh, sorry, in the spring of 2008. Then, uh, then came the war in Georgia. There was the French presidency during that particular semester. The French took it up, and we had decisions, I think, in December or something like that by the European Council. And then the former launch was in 2019, but it was 2018. It gave the it gave a framework for our relationship with um, the Eastern Eastern European neighbours as different from Russia. We already had that with Russia, but there had been an element of neglect to these particular countries. Um, it was, of course, somewhat daring in the sense that we lumped them together. I mean, the three Southern Caucasus countries. And then here, Ukraine, Moldova, and Belarus, very different. Um, but we thought that was useful to have that, that framework, and I think it's proved to be useful as well. Then what has been done is that it has been possible to move forward with the, the DCFTA agreement, the associations agreement with Ukraine, with Moldova, and with Georgia. And it has even been possible to move forward with the visa freedom for these countries, which was really something that I thought was going to be difficult. Um, Then it's going to be quite an effort to implement these particular agreements. And and we see that we have now some sort of agreement with Armenia, whatever that is. Uh, We see an opening in terms of Belarus, which is clearly a different bird, but... um, there's no question it has been a successful operation. Another uh, geographical area that you focus a lot on is the, is the Balkans. And um, I want to ask you about the Balkans uh, because in a tweet in April, you uh, mentioned that um, the Balkans has now become a new testing ground uh, for the EU. Uh, and my mm-hmm. question is, in what sense 
Uh, has it become a testing ground? Well, you can argue it's been a testing ground for a long time, but but uh, but but I think there was a mistake in the beginning of this particular sort of commission and whatever that they had a tendency to downgrade accession for the Western Balkans. I thought that was a mistake because it means that other tensions are building up. Now they are trying to rectify that particular mistake. I mean, the commission has presented a Western Balkan strategy, which is very ambitious, and I think that's essentially I agree with that strategy. But um, it is an ambitious one, and it includes quite a number of complicated issues that needs to be sorted out. And they will not be sorted out without fairly heavy lifting from, uh, from Brussels and the institutions. It's not going to happen on its own. Um, whether that heavy lifting will come, that remains to be seen. And that's what I mean when I say it's a testing ground. I mean, we, we can declare things in Brussels, fine. But if you should change the realities on the ground in the Balkans, you, you, it needs heavy lifting in terms of diplomacy, in terms of money, in terms of engagement as well. What would be the most kind of important aspect of that heavy heavy lifting? Well, you have quite a number of things when it comes to infrastructure development of different sorts. That's money, but that's also an element of heavy lifting to overcome some of the blockages that are there, both between the countries and inside the countries. Then one aspect that the Commission uh, highlighted, which I think was right, is that one should sort out the different bilateral disputes. We, we have a somewhat unfortunate experience between Croatia and Slovenia, uh, which we've not been able to do or we tried to do and then it blew up. And here there are quite a number of difficult things. I mean, the most difficult thing is sort of the Serbia-Kosovo relationship. Uh, there was a, the so-called Belgrade Agreement. That was five years ago. Has that been implemented? No, it hasn't been implemented. So it requires really effort to move forward with that part of it. And that's only one of the issues. Uh, we have some complicated issues in Bosnia as well that needs to be sorted out prior to the election that they're going to have in September. From the Balkans, I want to move briefly to your uh, home country, which is Sweden. Mm. And I want to ask you a question related uh, to Sweden joining NATO. There's currently, when you, when you follow uh, some of the discussions in the Sweden, it, it seems that there is a genuine momentum perhaps towards Sweden eventually joining NATO. And, and my question is, is it possible um, after the, 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 the Riksdag, the, the parliamentary elections in September, that Sweden might apply for NATO membership in the next two years, let's say? In the next two years, I would say no. But uh, you're still correct when you say there's a momentum. There's a momentum, although sort of these things take some time. And uh, to go into NATO as it was with going into the European Union, you need a sort of a fairly broad majority. It's not that you do with sort of a very thin majority in Parliament because that doesn't work. Uh, we don't have that at the moment. Even if we were to do, win the elections and have sort of a parliamentary majority, it was a slight parliamentary majority in the autumn, we have the Social Democrats being so far very hesitant, or to be precise, against. Uh, I think this will change over time. Uh, I think the momentum is there because we are sort of gradually increasing our defense cooperation with other countries, Finland notably, but also with sort of the, the Americans and with the Baltic states and with Norway and with NATO. And then sooner or later, I think the step in NATO is going to be seen as fairly, fairly natural. What has led uh, Swedes to kind of reconsider the possibility of joining NATO in your opinion? Because if you look at the The same discussion in, in Finland, nothing much has happened. I mean, the, the, in Finland, the mm. public support for NATO, if I remember correctly, is, is still about mm. at 30%. Whereas in Sweden, mm. like it has 
changed quite a bit uh, to, to in favor of NATO. It has changed somewhat. Yeah, it has changed. I think it's changed more in Sweden than in Finland. Uh, at the same time, I think that Finland is in a position that if the Finnish leadership were to say we're going to join, you will see a fairly big swing in Finnish opinion. Um, Swedes are somewhat more difficult in that respect in following their, their leadership. I mean, we, we had a policy of neutrality during the Cold War, which was very strict, uh, which I think was essentially correct. And the historical basis for that uh, was, to be quite frank, was Finland, uh, because Finland, going back to the late 1940s, had a very vulnerable position. Had Sweden joined Denmark and Norway to join the Americans, I think it could have sort of increased Soviet pressure on Finland at that particular time. That was the reason why we stayed neutral, and we stayed neutral. Then the Soviet Union disappeared, and Sweden and Finland joined the European Union. And the European Union is an alliance. It doesn't have any military structures, uh, but it is an alliance, uh, which means that sort of policy of neutrality ceased to exist as as an option. If there were to be war, we would be in it together as a union. And um, gradually this new reality is sinking in with uh, public opinion in Sweden that, of course, was forged and formed during a generation of neutrality, but it is changing. The very last uh, thing I want to ask you is is, uh, related to the transatlantic relationship. During the 2018 Brussels Forum, which I believe you also Mm. uh, attended, a lot of the people who spoke, they, they pointed out that there is currently seems to be a lack of trust in the transatlantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And as a former prime minister, as a former foreign minister, and as a person who has literally worked on, on uh, building trust in very difficult and challenging areas, what, in your opinion, could be done to restore trust in people's minds into the transatlantic relationship? I think it's a slightly mixed picture if you look at the situation across the, trans- the, the transatlantic picture. I think the security relationship seems to be okay. There was some, some, some uncertainty in the beginning of the Trump presidency where he was standing, but I mean, we now have firm commitments and what they have done has been not only following what was decided during the Obama time, but even reinforcing that. So, so far, so good. But But on virtually everything else, it is somewhat different. I mean, we have an administration in Washington that contains people that are not only sort of ignorant of the European Union, but more or less hostile to the European Union. They sort of dislike the entire thing. And uh, they have a world view where the concept of liberal order doesn't exist. It's sort of nations fighting each other, every nation being first to itself, and every conflict possible. And we see that most notably, of course, on the the trade side, where... um, there have always been an element of tension between the European Union and the US on trade. To my knowledge, never had anything like this with sort of uh, primarily so far in rhetoric trade war. But where we to go to some real trade war, it will, of course, make a difference. I hope this is a passing phase in American politics. Um, but uh, that remains to be seen. On that note, I would like to thank you, Mr. Bild, for participating in uh, Defense Dialogue and for sharing your thoughts on the, on the topics we discussed. And I would also thank, to, uh, thank our listeners and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was today's episode of Defense Dialogue. Subscribe to our podcasts for more. 